the views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. You've descended into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack, a commercial diving podcast by working divers for divers. This episode is brought to you by Ocean Eye Inc. Ocean Eye's main focus is you, the commercial diver. With industry leading end to end service and expertise, they got everything you need for your next dive job. You need your gear maintenance or repaired? Need some new products or consulting? Ocean Eye's got you covered. Give them a call at 610-621-5750 or visit them online at OceanEyeInc.com. This is LB Diver with the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack here for a live edition at the Ocean Corp in Houston. Super excited to be here. Yep, I'm Johnny with Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Also very excited. Um, maybe it's Tad hungover. Just a from last bit. night, but Quite not shiners. Yeah, well, I'm in Texas. Yeah, you have to. It's a must. So, you know, awesome. And we have another John here that's uh, been gracious enough to sit with us to tell us all about Ocean Corp. How are you doing, John? I'm fine. I'm John Wood, and I'm the president of the Ocean Corporation. So oh, perfect, beautiful. Fire away with your questions, and we'll go from there. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for taking the time out to talk with us here at the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. So part of what we do is a dive education as well through our podcast. We have you know, a ton of guests on that are well-known in the industry, um, like yourself. So uh, this is like an educational thing, but it's also a fun thing, too. So we're here to have a little bit of fun and also talk about the Ocean Corp, like you know, when it all started and how long have you guys been in business and, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, just uh, what somebody can expect when they, you know, First start school. Well, I got to back up. You guys are hungover, and nobody offered me a beer. Oh, I know. So what's up with that? Um, that wasn't bad <laughs> taste, wasn't it? <laughs> okay, it's really, so um, Ocean Corp's been around since 69. Um, we're on our third physical location. Um, I've only been here 33 years. and Only 33, right? Uh, it's, um, most of the staff here, longtime people. Nice. So if you if you come here and you're not going to work out, the rest of the people usually run you off pretty quick. Kind of a self-policing. Um, early's on time, one time's late, late's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of crowd, a uh, bunch of veterans, a bunch of old divers. The support staff in the office are obviously skills and what they do. This is different. This isn't a dive company. This is a dive school. So we've got faculty and bureaucrats that deal with the federal government on their student loans and grants and the VA and those kind of things. And um, it's a Texas hospitality. We we have a combined training complex. We use some tanks out here, and then we have some open water experience down in Galveston. Uh, we have a reciprocal agreement with Texas A&M Marine College down in Galveston. Um, I didn't start the thing, obviously. I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. Um, I was recruited by Les Joyner, who I think is one of your previous guests. Mm-hmm. And um, he hired me away from what I was doing. I was a banker and had a little bit more of an entrepreneurial spirit and probably really didn't fit into that banking community. Um, so, you know, one reprobate recognizes another. And um, so we are just reminiscing the other day about how much more interesting my life has been the last 35 years than it would have been had I been the other path and um, not all good but you know bad bad memories make for memories yeah sure do yeah. I'd rather have some scars than not have uh, lived you know that's absolutely right I feel sorry for the people that um, you know like my wife and I looked at our circle of friends over the last 30 something years and People just, they're too busy to do anything. So they go to work, they go home, they watch TV, and they go to bed, and they get up and they go to work. It's like, come on, dude, get a fucking life. You know, buy a boat, do something irresponsible. Have an affair, <laughs> do something to break the monotony. Well, we're not advocating <laughs> that. Well, but you understand what I'm saying. I mean, so you know, the people got to get up and do something, you know, mm-hmm. but people go through life just... 
They're slaves to their job. Right. And you know what? That's what draws some of the students here to the school. Because, again, you might get to a certain point in your life that it's like, crap, what am I doing? Getting up every day, going to the same office. It's, I mean, no offense to the admin staff here, you know, right. but but you get what I'm getting mm-hmm. at. You know, that's what draws the, the people in here is that they want to break that monotony and join an industry that's just, you know, different. We're all different. I've had more than one student use me as an escape plan from a bad marriage. He picks the Ocean Corporation so he can move to Houston away from Kansas, and he has no intention of going back when he graduates. And um, but he, he gets her. He leaves her at home with the kids, and she helps pay for school. And then he gives her divorce papers around graduation time. It's, I'm not advocating that, but it's it's. It is a pattern. Yeah, well, I mean, the industry, that's what you deal with when an industry is like full of a lot of scumbags, you know, and we're proud of it too. Titan yes. scum. Well, that's why you call it bottom yeah. feeders, right? You know? Oh, <laughs> oh bottom, well, well, bottom, bottom feeders. <laughs> bottom feeders. <laughs> you know, we're kind of cat. Well, I guess we are here at the Ocean Corp, so we so are, we are kind of bottom pretty feed. at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, you've run out of good people to talk to. I understand. So, just kidding. No, so, we, we're excited to be here. We are. Yeah, yeah, and I know I asked this a few questions before, before we started talking, but. Just to reiterate, because our audience hasn't heard those questions, when they do move to Houston, do you guys help them out with housing, or do you guys have like a... Yeah, uh, it's 2022, man. I've got to have... <laughs> you got to have it all? i got to have touchy-feely people. So You're we have right. A, we have a student services group. They, they help them with roommate matching, which I encourage over straight rentals. Um, they can roommate match, or they can just get apartment locations. A uh, surprising number of people. Houston's a pretty big place. Have friends and family here somewhere. Okay. Um, that that's the, the the financial aid, the student loans, the grants, the VA benefits. Um, you know how to how to not get arrested in town. That kind of stuff. Kind of it's all part of the communication. Nice. That's kind of important. Yeah, I run a an off the books food bank. I have a food pantry here. I support FFA and buy a cow on a pig every year. And um, we slaughter it and put it in the freezer in the back. And if you're no shit hungry, you'll find something to eat. Nobody's going to go hungry on my watch. That's And it, we've in all the years we've been doing it, 20, 23, 24 years now, um, it started when my son was playing tournament baseball and little kid on the team came up and wanted me to buy his sister's pig. And I was like, I live in the city, dude. I'm like, what am I going to do with a pig? And he goes, no, no, it's the FFA auction. I go to the auction and there's no bidders because it was inner city, right? Mm-hmm. And um, some some guy was buying inventory for his barbecue stand pissed me off. So I went the next year told my wife we're not doing any other charities. We're going to make sure no kid loses money at this auction. So I said the minimum floor price for every animal is what the ag teacher told me it cost him to raise it. So I bought an awful lot of stuff, and I wrote him a hot check on Saturday because I didn't have enough money to cover it. And then I called up buddies and sold. You had to pay cash, but I'd sell shit out of my gun cabinet so I could get enough money to pay, cover the check on Monday. So then I gave all those critters away, and then I started realizing I might actually have hungry students. So we started keeping one steer and one pig every year and butcher them. They live in the afterlife together rubbing plastic, but um, <laughs> it's kind of like Bill Clinton. I did not have sex with that woman. But um, uh, So if, if, if you have an eating requirement for your religion, <clears throat> I've studied them all. There's a get-out-of-jail-free card for time of real need. If you're going to starve, if you break your eating restrictions... You're, you will be forgiven. So whether you're kosher or halal, it doesn't matter. You can eat the stuff I've got. It's clean. It's safe. Um, and all the years we've been doing it, we've never run out of food because the students that really, really need it, take it, and those that don't, don't abuse it. So That's yes. pretty cool. There's a lot of good services and, you know, a lot of good services that you provide, you know, on top of just just the education. You mentioned that it was kind of like a family and everything. Yeah. Do you kind of see that bond between the divers and students by the time they're done with the program? Hopefully. Um, I try to encourage them early on that there's six cohorts that they're going to go to school with. You know, so we start a new class every five weeks. You do not want to be a worm because everybody on campus the people ahead of you and the people behind you will all know you. And that's an awful lot of people to talk bad about you when you go to work. So you probably ought to try to get along and help each other out. Because 
Some students come here, they're like math whizzes, and other guys are practical barnyard rednecks and can fix anything. If they will cooperate and share their knowledge with each other, they'll both be better. Mm-hmm. You know, rising tide lifts all ships, right? So we try to encourage that, and, and we know divers are a little bit loners, you know, so they always did stuff on their own, and they don't want help, but truth is nobody gets it done by themselves. True that. So, I mean, people come here from all walks of life. Um, what's some advice to, to give to someone that's been living in their mother's basement for the past uh, year or two? <clears throat> so socially awkward kids. <laughs> I'm sure you've got plenty of those. We have a few of those. It seems like it's changed. Um, I was just laughing with Les. You know, 30 years ago, everybody knew how to change their own oil. But to be fair to the kids, you can't fix a car unless you own a computer today. And back in my day, you could change the points in the condenser and rebuild the carburetor and put the car back on the road. Well, I don't think a car today has a carburetor, and I don't think any of them have anything except electronic ignition. So the shade tree mechanic thing is something they didn't get to experience. Yeah. So, but we have to teach them the difference, some of them, the difference between a crescent wrench and a hammer and a screwdriver. And the kids that are a little ahead are the ones that had a more um, ruffian lifestyle. You know, when I was young, when you were young, mom and dad said, go find something to do. So you went out in the yard and you picked up something, and you made a toy out of it, or you picked up trash and you made something out of it. Um, now, I don't know, if I had a child who was eight years old today, I don't know if I'd let them run around the neighborhood unsupervised. Um, maybe that's just me being a paranoid no, old no. man, you know? Um, so... You know, different walks of life. You got city kids that know one thing. You got country kids that know something else. Um, some of our better students are obviously veterans. Um, some of them are a little older, you know, late 20s, early 30s. They've got some life experience. They have an appreciation for the fact that, you know, I'm not going to be the next Bill Gates, which for a while, it's like every kid that came here wanted to know how I'm going to be the next Bill Gates millionaire in the internet thing. Well, no, dude, we're going to hand you tools and you're going to go in order and fix stuff. You know, so <clears throat> there, there's some rudimentary mechanical tools training that has to take place that didn't used to. But the right mental attitude, persevere, push on, work hard, they'll figure it out. They're not dumb. I mean, forever we used to test these guys. Most of my students, 95 percentile on standardized achievement tests. They're smart. They may didn't do good in school. They're also not the kind of people like to be told what to do for no mm-hmm. good reason. If you're going to have a reason to do or not do something, it needs to be connected to their safety and their income. If it's just bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake, they'll buck it every time. I don't know. Maybe it goes with us. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure you're nothing like that. No, absolutely not. I I listen to everything. I'm a good person. Sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> what, are uh, what are some of the... Uh, what's the curriculum here? What do you, what do you have to offer <clears throat> these well, up-and-coming students? We have two different courses of study. I know this is a program about diving. We train commercial divers. Yes. And we train non-destructive testing technicians. So people that age out of diving or have a physical disability that would keep them from passing the dive physical can still get a career opportunity to do an inspection. That's really good. So the inspectors, I've had former pharmacists come here, you know, former airline pilots in their 50s, 60s. They retired out. They become industrial inspectors, which is... Basically, we do for industry everything the medical field does for humans except draw blood. We x-ray it. We do this, that, and the other. The whole idea is to look for and identify potential failure points in things that are going to cause loss of life or economic damage. Now, is the time frame to completion the same? They're both 30-week programs, okay. one academic year, what, seven and a half months, you know, forever. We've tried to make it to where... The tuition price could be divided by 22, and if you made that much money a week for 22 weeks, you'd get your tuition money back. Come to school, pay, go to job, make enough money to have be net zero at the end of a year. Wow. Wow, that's, that's awesome. Um, 
I've got competitors that are a little bit more expensive for the same or similar thing. So that's just, I didn't get into this to become a rich guy. I got into it because my retired partner, Les, um, recruited me. And I said, you know, look, I'll come to work for you basically for free for a year. Um, But we got to help people. There's really got to be jobs. Because I knew nothing about trade schools. I was a banker. And I had a kind of a bad taste on my mouth about it. Because, you know, anyway. And he goes, no, no, we really help people. There really are jobs. And it really is a good deal. And I said, well, then if that's the case, I'm all in. And I said, but a year later, I'm going to make a certain percentage of what you make. And you're going to sell me part of the company. And we'll figure out the price at that point in the future. And I'll shake your hand on it. And gave my resignation my boss who thought I'd lost my mind and um and it's it's been a wonderful life because of it and um met all sorts of interesting people I mean you know how many people do you know that's had lunch with the Dalai Lama none right less and I one. less and I were sitting over at a, a Chinese dumpling house with a guy who will remain nameless because I don't you the definition of anonymity is you can't use your name, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and he was... Um, <laughs> and now you're going to drop his name. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you his name. But we were sitting there, and he was talking about having gotten into a 12-step program, and he wasn't really sure about you know all this, that, and the other. And he kind of thought that, you know, maybe I'm a Buddhist. And we're sitting there, and, and at the ta- right behind his chair was the Dalai Lama with his bodyguard, and we're the only five people in the restaurant. And so Les looked at him and said, well, do you think you take it as a sign from above that you're on the right path if you were actually sitting here having lunch with the Dalai Lama? And he goes, yeah. And he turned around and looked behind you. And no shit, he was sitting behind us. And it's like, he jumps up. And I was like, tell the body, cool, he's cool. He's just an admirer. We're not a threat. You know, and, um, you know, because it was, they had, this place was a dumpling house. It's gone now. But they had the best steamed vegetable Chinese dumpling that I ever eaten. They are fabulous. And, well, the Dalai know, Lama was there. So the Dalai sure Lama was there, so it obviously came with, a, came with a good reputation. But, but you know, we, we've, I've had the ex- opportunity to experience all sorts of really bizarre shit bizarre like that. Bizarre stuff, yeah. Just bizarre. You know, um, we, we've, we got invited to, we weren't officially invited. We got the email from a bunch of guys in Europe that wanted to set up a reciprocity of credentials for commercial divers internationally. And it started at the International Diving School Association. Well, they sent an email out so so they could say they invited everybody. But Mm. typical Brit thing, he who controls the agenda controls the outcome. Well, we get the invitation like three days before we're supposed to be there. So we look at each other and say, wait a minute, if they're going to come up with global standards, America needs to be at the table, right? So none of the other school people went. Nobody from the ADC was going. It was three days before. Well, yeah, yeah, because they they didn't tell you. So so we even paid full tilt to buy tickets to go to Amsterdam, to catch a train, to go to Delft. We don't have anything, no hotel reservations. We don't even know the exact address of the meeting. So we fly to Amsterdam. We get on the train because they say run and make the next train on track three. We do. It goes out of town 20 minutes and stops on the siding. little Dutch kid comes in and says, you got to get off the train. I said, no, no, I got to take it all the way to Delft. Yeah, but this is not your train. The train that left from track three after our train was the one that went all the way to Delft. We were on the express commuter train. So, you know, we got a guy, um, had a taxi. He drove us to Delft, found us a bed and breakfast. And the nice little old lady um, said, you know, she didn't speak very good English. And my Dutch is poor at best. So, um she figured out we had something to do with diving. So she's a little town. She calls everybody. Mm-hmm. They had moved in the three days from when they sent out the email to the day we got there. The meeting was not where they said it was going to be. Um, they had moved from this building to that building on the other side of town. So we get up, put on our trench coats, trek across town in the rain and get there soaking wet and we're the first two people in the room waiting for the meeting to start. And another guy shows up, and um, they were really some kind of surprise to see us. They didn't want us there. They wanted, so to make up, they wanted to make up their rules and do their own thing. And we showed up, and we're kind of a, a fly in the ointment. And um, you met Les, and uh, 
Back then, he could be less diplomatic than he is now. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we, we got out of the meeting without touching anybody. <laughs> and that was, I considered that a success. <laughs> and, um, you know, so so we joined their stupid little organization and, um, and continued to be a pain in the ass. And we kept showing up for the meetings once a year. And, um, like, you know, our school trains more people in a year than all of y'all put together train in a year. And we're just one school in the United States. So for y'all to dictate to us what we're going to do in America because of what you decide, that's BS. So that relationship led to um, less looking at things. And, and he came up with the idea of we need an ANSI standard so that we can have something. Because all of these other people in the other parts of the world, their government tells them what to do. Mm -hmm. So they have a... British standard or a Norwegian standard or a French standard, or God forbid, the Italian standard. And um, so so if they all have an American, they all have a national standard, they agreed to trade. You're a diver there, you're a diver here, because it's, you're trained good enough for your country, that's good enough for our country. They looked at us and we said, no, no. We don't have the government tell us what to do. This is America. This is free enterprise, right? So they used that as a way to discriminate against mm. American divers. You don't know anything because you're not trained in accordance with the standard. Well, there isn't a national standard. There still isn't. So that got us on the bandwagon of trying to start the ANSI standard with the ultimate goal of getting somebody in the federal government to agree to just issue a card with the eagle on it. They do it for pilots. Let's do it for divers. And the thing could be self-funding. Here's the standard. Anybody that trains in accordance with this standard pays you a fee and you issue a card. Kind of a magic thought. Um, they still won't do it and still haven't done it. Um, but IMCA recognized that the schools all talked to the ANSI standard and that the schools were all audited by the Department of Education, a federal agency. So we negotiated in that maybe you could recognize the graduates from the schools that teach the Andy Standard that are Department of Ed audited. Maybe not the, not some little dive school, but us. Mm -hmm. And um, so us, DIT oh. at the time, College of Oceaneering, um, Divers Academy of the Eastern Seaboard, that was it back then. And um, so they said, well, if you teach the ANSI Standard in your Title IV college, then we'll work out reciprocity of credentials for IMCA. So that, that's great because I mean that's really all you need is you got your ADCI card here and then you got your IMCA card for anything else overseas. You know, right? But IMCA was not going to talk to us at all. Oh, really? Because they had already talked to the ADCI, mm -hmm. and the ADCI had their own card program, and they said we're not going to accept that because that's too self-serving because it's an industry card. And there was some tension between the historical executive directors at the time. Let's leave it at that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so since the schools could make the counterclaim that, well, you know, our card, because there is an Association of Commercial Diving Educators card, um, which runs in parallel with the ADCI card. Um, if you had this, our card, and you've been to a school post-1992, I think, the ANSI standard got created, then they would recognize graduates from our programs. But like if a dive company brought a kid in off the street, said they trained them, got an ADCI card, they weren't going to recognize them because they weren't audited by any federal government agency. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? It does make sense. So um, I'll make a shameless plug. I think that Les Joyner and that vision needs to be inducted into the ADCI's Hall of Fame because that was a visionary thought, and it was a selfless act. We spent a lot of money doing that, of our own money, and he was a partner then. And um, no, we're not a big company. No, we're not rich. And no, we didn't set depth records on a dive or any of that other stuff. But this has helped more people over the last 30 years than almost anybody I can think of that's in the Hall of Fame. And that guy needs to be in there. I can agree, he certainly does.
I mean, we're hundred percent behind him. And uh, yep. there's there's a lot of a uh, lot of great divers that are still still around, and uh, they're they're mentors, and they're you know to myself and and and, and other divers too. You know that very selfless. You know, you guys are very selfless, and it's uh, very refreshing to still see you know people helping people. You know, much less divers helping divers. You know. Well, nobody else likes us, so we have to stick together. We have to stick together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're right, 100 right. <laughs> you know, you know. Hey. Well, anyway, you know, but I really think that if anybody's listening that has the power to on the nominating committee or something, I mean, and I'd be happy to sit down and make a case over lunch about why he deserves. Yeah, and we definitely need to go over maybe in another future episode on how to do that because there is a nomination process and and uh, it does require just writing letters and uh, and sending sending in the form so uh, maybe we can make a big big push for that you know get, uh, uh, we can start a GoFundMe and... page for Les's nomination <laughs> yeah um, there we go we still want to get we still want to see Les Gorski in there too you yes know? yeah I, I I know them both very well yeah Les Gorski um, was a a huge part of the school too well there's his helmet you know we sponsored his citizenship when he um, he jumped off a boat, Galveston Bay, swam east instead of west like a dummy. And um, and when he crawled out over there on Smith Point, the first guy that showed up was a sheriff's deputy, and he sees a uniform. And um, Leszek, you know, F Russia, F Russia. You know, he's saying that's he knew that word, <laughs> and um, and you know, he said F Russia, F Russia, asylum, asylum. And they figured this Pollock doesn't speak very much English and eventually got him somewhere and found a translator. And, and all they really understood at the time was he's Polish, he's a defector, he jumped off that boat, and he wants to go to dive school. So they brought him here, and then we talked to him and realized, this guy didn't want to go to dive school. This guy is a fucking diver. And he was a diver in Poland, right? Yeah. And he really, really hated the Russians because they killed his dad. Yeah. And... um and it took a while to get yeah. his family out. I don't know. Did yeah, yeah. We, yeah. He told it, us his story, which is an amazing story. And, yeah, uh, you, yeah. You know. So. And yeah, if you have not heard his story, then go back to one of our previous episodes. I believe it's episode number five or six or somewhere around there. Somewhere. So, yeah, definitely uh, take a look at Les Gorsi's stories. True. It's true, my favorite. True American still. hero. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of us were born here. That guy chose it. Yeah. You know, and that says something. So. Um, Anyway. He left his family for it. You also have the prototype helmet here too, which was amazing. Yes, we got We're gonna share some pictures of that. So make sure you check our uh, our Instagram page and our Facebook page and all that stuff too. So well, yeah. back in the shop, we built the bucket, and then he had a Bell motorcycle, the full face motorcycle helmet, and we built one of those back in the same shop, and um, then some of the the helmet manufacturers who are bigger known. Um, lobbied to get homemade helmets banned from the field and so that's where the Gorski came up into play and um, I got to buy number one and what I did was Leshit came and wanted to sell me part of his business in exchange for the seed money he needed to get going and what I did is I agreed to buy five helmets and paid him in advance um, and he said, how much of the company do you want? And I said, I want to be able to buy number one. Nice. So, so that helmet sitting right there is number one. And he was a little surprised that I didn't want a part of the company. And But, you know, I knew if he really got that thing running, he was going to quit. You know, so we, that, I kind of shot myself in the foot. I lost a really good employee and coworker and friend when, when he left. And, uh, and then he fucking moved to Florida. He never saw him anymore, hardly. And, um, but, you know, he's a real good guy. And... Luckily, he got his family out and all was mm-hmm. well. And, um, you know, we lost him, what, two years ago? A year and a half ago? A year and a half. A year and a half, I think, yeah. 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 yeah, it was a really, real sad thing. But you've had a lot of, uh, you know, legends that have passed through these doors here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's some other names? Um, people that are actually working in the industry. <clears throat> you can't compliment one without minimizing somebody else. So I'd kind of rather just talk about the people that I've worked with. Mm-hmm. Instead of students and oh, we just saw Ray Spillers too. In yeah, the Spillers. Over there. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a that's a true ruffian. Um, I think that ninety percent of Ray's stories couldn't be broadcast. Um, well, that's going to make it difficult because we're talking to him tomorrow. So, <laughs> well, well he, he he won't have to bleep much, but um, some of the really fun stories that I remember with Ray, uh, I mean, you've seen Ray. 
Yes. Ray's a big boy. Um, I want you to picture being on a job somewhere, and we were all exhausted. We'd worked all day. We drank till two or three in the morning, and we're all sharing one hotel room at like a Marriott somewhere. And about four o'clock in the morning, the patio door slings open, and all the lights come on, and the coffee pot starts banging around. And I look up, and there is naked Ray, except for a really, really small speedo that his belly's done lopped over, and it's a leopard. <laughs> and, I'm, and I was like, "Holy shit, Ray, what are you doing?" He goes, "What's four thirty? It's time to get up. We got stuff to do." And I was like, "Right, it's four thirty. We've been in bed for an hour and a half." Um, you know, so uh, that's cool. So he's a he's a good Jim Haynes. Did you ever know Jim? No. Well, you have you still have a chance. He's still alive. Oh, um, nice. Jim Haynes was um, Fulbright Colonel in the Air Force, was in Force 404 in Vietnam. I guess we can talk about Force 404. It, the Air Force's version of the SEALs. Mm-hmm. And when Kennedy was assassinated, the bill authorizing the creation of it was on his desk. He didn't get to sign it. So the Air Force's Special Forces was not technically authorized. So um, Jim ran around with a piano wire and two sticks and a shotgun and a knife and planted the microphones that were the listening devices on the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos and Cambodia in the early days. And um, they just basically took him back there with the helicopter, dropped his ass off and said, radio us and we'll try to figure out where to come get you later. So he survived in the jungle until Kennedy was assassinated. And they said, wait a minute. Jim's in Force 404. We don't exist. We're not supposed to be here. So they came and they got him. And they took him really quickly. And he ended up on Waikiki Beach in Hawaii with a completely falsified dossier of his military career. And he's fresh out of the jungle, just got a set of clothes and a shave. He's laying on the beach. And he says, I look down the beach, and here comes this blonde with big tits swaying in a bikini. And he goes, that's just what the doctor ordered. <laughs> and, and her name is Kitty, and he married her. She's half his age. And um, he became like the ops manager for Taylor Diving and Salvage, back when Taylor was owned by McDermott, right? And that who owned Taylor? Anyway. Um, yeah, I think later on. But yeah, Taylor and McDermott, those were huge, huge well, he, names back then. But he worked for Taylor. Yeah. And then eventually, uh, figured it, you know, they, they were never going to be able to be parents. So they um, they had worked here for a while, both of them, and they weren't going to retire. So he bought a, a Choi, the boat called the Choi Lee, and they were going to sail around the world, just the two of them. Well, a lot of time together. Kitty ends up pregnant. So um, his going away present, we gave him a set of lawn darts. You know, the hula hoop yeah. and the big darts. And he's like, what idiot would give somebody that lives on a sailboat lawn darts? This is somebody that doesn't want you to accuse them. <laughs> you know, it's a smart-ass gift, Jim. Yeah. You know, see the humor. And um, so she ended up having the baby in England, and then they turned around and came back. And um, he said, well, can I get my job back? Because, you know, I don't want to raise the boy on the boat. Uh, James Jr., Jamie is their son. And um, Jim taught mixed gas and really, really, you know, Ray, mechanical, fix it with nothing but chewing gum and bailing wire. Jim could make physics and physiology understandable to a rock. You know, That's so, a special skill. So, and it really is. So he, um, he's also like a six-degree, six-dan jujitsu master. And he looks like Orville Redenbacher, but you do not <laughs> want to let this guy touch you. <laughs> okay. It's a, you know, I've had students come up and, and, you know, say, you know, that Jim's going to piss me off. I'm going to kick his ass. I said, go ahead. <laughs> but before you do, please let me know when you're going to start because I want to watch because he's going to wad you up in a ball and stuff you in a five gallon bucket. And, um, because he is crazy skilled. Um, so he had, um, give me an idea of Kitty. True blonde. She called me up. He was um had had some surgery. He was a veteran. He wouldn't use my insurance. He I'm gonna use the VA. I earned it. I'm gonna use their doctor. So he had something done and he was convinced that they had screwed up the nerves when they did his hip replacement. And um he's getting this pain. So he goes to the and so she calls me from the VA hospital 
And she goes, well, John, I don't think Jim's going to be back this afternoon. He wanted me to call you. And I said, so what's going on? She goes, well, they found a, an aneurysm of some sort on his renal artery. And I said, he has an aneurysm on his renal artery. She goes, yeah, it's just a quick thing. They're going to cut him open, fix it, and he'll be out. So I said, where are you exactly? So I drove down there because I didn't want to wait by it. He had a golf ball-sized aneurysm on his renal artery, which connects your heart to your lung. And if it pops, you're dead. Yeah. And... um. So I waited with her. He survived because he's tough as boot leather. And um, this is leading somewhere, my being watched. So anyway, long story short, he's in the hospital and he's mad because he's got a staph infection between his skin and fat layer and his in the muscles. So it has to be irrigated and the gauze has to be unpacked and changed. And he goes, well, I've done worse than this in the jungle, so I, I don't need to be in the hospital for this crap. So he checks himself out of the hospital. The next day he shows up at work. Well, our uniform shirts, which I'm not wearing, they button down the front. They're orange cotton shirts. So I, at one of my ladies that works here, she comes up, she pokes her head through my door, and her eyes are bulging out of her head. She's going... Jim, Jim, that's the only thing I hear. So I, I jump up and run. So I think something's happened. Mm-hmm. So I look in the door, and he's got the little office trash can, and he's sitting on the front of his chair, leaning forward. His shirt's all tucked behind him, and he's taking all the wrapping off, and he's holding himself open, and he's reaching in, pulling all this bloody, stinky gauze out, dropping it in the garbage can, and taking a squirt bottle and rinsing it off in the garbage can in his office because he's got to get the infection cleaned out so he can wrap it up so it will naturally heal. And so I say, Jim, he goes, no, I'm fine. I said, okay. So I shut the door and then he comes to my office and he goes, what'd you need? And I said, next time you're doing that, I'm not going to tell you you can't come to work, but the next time you're doing that, do me a favor. And he goes, what's that? And I said, lock your door because you're freaking the ladies out. Oh, I didn't think about that. And I was like, <laughs> so Jim was an interesting character. Um, in there with God. irrigating all this. And, um, you know, so, Damn yeah, he just, and he's reaching in, pulling this stuff. <laughs> but this was a few years back, but I'm still, um, and, and it's crazy. I, I had a, a student write a letter of complaint to the governor about one of my employees who was supposedly drinking in the classroom. So I said, okay, so the guy called me up. You know, from the governor passes it down, I get a call what a from a guy. stupid thing to complain about. But okay. out of all the other things, right? Right. But so <laughs> the guy he's complaining about is Jim Haynes. And I was like, that's not happening. And, and so I'm talking to the guy in Wash in Austin. And I said, you know, you're, you're two and a half hours. Jump in the car. You know, it's early in the morning. Mm-hmm. Jump in the car. Drive here. The class right now is in Galveston. Jim's with them. I'll drive you down there. I'll introduce you to Jim, and then Jim and I will go sit in my truck, and you can interview everybody else in the class confidentially. Don't need any subpoenas or anything. And you're going to find out that everybody hates the guy that wrote the letter and that nothing's wrong. And he says, you sound pretty confident. I said, you haven't met Jim Haynes. And he goes, Jim Haynes, how old is this guy? And I said, I don't know, gray hair, Vietnam guy, full bird colonel. That guy works for you? I was like, yeah, how do you know him? He goes, I used to sit at the airport in South Vietnam at the base, and I listened to the microphones that he planted on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. He's a legend. I said, yeah, yeah, that's right. He goes, and, and, and you're his boss. And I said, well, not exactly. Said, he goes, you own the place. I said, yes. You sign his checks. Yes. I said, but we're coworkers because he's still Mr. Haynes to me, right? And he goes, well, as long as he works for you, I'm going to give this complaint the proper respect it deserves. And I said, what's that? And he goes, I'm putting it in the round file, and I'm not coming to town. <laughs> and um, So if if you get a chance, I would suggest that you talk to Jim, because his diving history and his whole life story is just fascinating. He's another guy like Ray. Um, many, many moons ago, uh, not sort of tangently direct related to the company, was a guy named Joe Gatro, And Joe was an interesting character. He was not a commercial diver. He was a recreational diver. But somehow, some way, he was a an asset to our government. You know, he like collected machine guns, and he had his own airport, and he had a room the size of my office that was full of things that 
normally I can't buy and you can't buy. Mm. And they'd all be there, and you'd talk to him and have a bourbon, and then you'd come back in a couple of weeks, and the room would be empty, and it's like, where'd all that shit go? And he goes, oh, somebody came and needed it. That okay. kind of guy. Yeah. So, um, and he somehow or another got connected. He ran a business, probably a cover, um, where he employee leased nuclear engineers to the power plants. So if you're a power plant and you need a nuclear engineer, Joe gave you a guy, and the guy actually worked for Joe, and you paid Joe. Hmm. So um, he passed away a few years ago. That was a, you can't interview him. But, you know, he went to his doctor, and the doctor said, you got to give up your cigar, and you got to give up your bourbon, and you got to give up your Viagra. And he goes, well, why would I want to live if I have to do that? So, um, so he quit for about a month, and then he came in, and he told me, John, I did got to tell you something. I said, what's that, Joe? And he goes, I'm going to use my Viagra, and I'm going to have a bourbon once a day, and I'm going to have a cigar once a day, and I'm going to stoop my wife. That's not what he said. I'm trying to come up with the right word. Um he was going to have conjugal relations with his wife and um, whenever he felt like it. And if he needed the Viagra to do that, and sooner or later, if it killed him, that's just okay. But he was going to go out on his own terms happy as opposed to just exist and be miserable. So, um, you know, elderly guy. You know, there's been some really interesting people like that. And um, so my coworkers are more infamous than interesting. You know, so they, uh, it's been fun. It has been a lot of fun. It sounds like a blast. Because, I mean, I tell you what, this this industry does attract a colorful sort mm-hmm. of crowd, as we've kind of been talking about this past uh, past half an hour. And uh, to be able to share that with somebody else, you know, as you do on a daily basis. Now, given not everybody works out. So mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why you have the NDT program, right? Yeah. The divers learn some NDT as part of the diving curriculum. Mm-hmm. And they can circle back out of the diving industry into the NDT industry. And when we first started it, that was a good fallback for them. But also, diving used to be more seasonal than it is today. And in the off-season, divers could work in the NDT industry and make some extra money instead of going. It used to be the kiss of death. Do not go down and file unemployment because it's winter and there's no work. Just disappear. Tell them. Page me when it's time for me to come back to work, and then let us get you a job in the NDT industry until the diving picks back up. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That was the original thought, and um, then I started getting yelled at by my diving employers because they would come in and they count all the guys, and they kind of divide them up amongst themselves. They knew who was going to get who, and then. Some NDT company would come in and realize that the divers knew a little bit of NDT. They'd offer them more money, and they'd steal them. Mm. And then they, the companies would be mad that I let this kid go to work for this NDT company. I was like, you know, that kid pays my salary. Right. You know, and if he can make more money working for them than he can for you, that's my obligation, right? Mm-hmm. And do the best thing I can for my graduate. So... I had one of those little aha moments, and I thought, well, maybe we can make everybody happy by starting a standalone NDT program. Those guys can't go to diving, and they'll know more NDT than the divers, so maybe the NDT people will prefer them. And it allowed us to recruit people with with physical disabilities and or age. You know, some guys age out of diving, you know. It's kind of tough to train a one-legged diver or a one-armed diver, but there's people with physical disabilities in the NDT industry. And um, so hopefully we kind of made everybody happy, right? We we quit losing guys from the diving industry to NDT, and we quit losing um, market share because a lot of people would come tour the facility and they'd look at it all, and you walk them out under the deck on the tour and they'd look in that decompression chamber. I got to get in there. Yeah, you got to get in there every day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And then they don't want to do that, yep. you right. know. So, so maybe that guy's a better inspector than diver, right? And um, that, that's so we're some of both now. But the divers can still wash out of diving and go to NDT. And I, Jeff, my touchy feely, nurturey humans, you know, student services guy, mm-hmm. he'll find him a job with an NDT company. 
And that's a great thing because, I mean, sometimes you have this thought in your head, this vision of this is what it's going to be like. I'm going to be an underwater welder. I'm going to be welding every day. And then next thing you know, when you get into the field, it's not like that. You're a red hat. You just got there. There's no way in hell you're going to be on an underwater welding job. Not given sometimes it does once in a blue moon, but you kind of get what I'm saying. True. The reality is not what the imagination like you know leads you to believe. So to have that NDT to fall back on it, I think that's that's an amazing thing that you guys offer, especially you know if they later on go down the road or or are they able to switch over if they have to? Like you said, if they look into that chamber and they're like, "Crap, I don't want to do this after all," can they jump into NDT right then and there? Yeah. Or is there a certain okay? Yeah. So. Um what we'll do is we'll take and give them credit for what they've learned in the mm-hmm. diving and the NDT or vice versa and the, try to keep the total cost as low as possible. And the government's got all sorts of rules over this changing programs and how the student loans and grants and stuff works. But we can usually minimize that. Um, maybe I can't get them out in 30 weeks. It might take me 40 weeks because mm-hmm. the overlaps don't line up perfect. Yeah. Um, but they can go back and forth between the two, but they need to do it once. They don't know to jump back and forth. And um, the the NDT program we run in the morning and at night. So if a guy's going to night school and his boss changes his hours, he can come to the morning class because they go through synchronously together. Well, and, yeah, um, that's perfect. You know, I have an alumni story. This kid, I can't remember his name, but he was the computer nerd in the class. And he wanted his very first job after he graduated. And the company was having a difficult time getting daily job report progress things back to the beach, getting them processed through so that they could bill the company, the customer. So he goes, well, I can do all that. I think, well, how are you going to do that? We had, he was one of the first kids that have wireless internet on his laptop. So he'd take all the daily logs, write them into a thing, email his wife on the beach who would drive him over to the office and then they would take those reports and they were ready to bill. They just, they just like printed them, put them in an envelope, sent them and got paid. Next thing you know, you're, that's the helicopter coming to get him. They put this kid on the helicopter and flew him to the beach. He never got wet and he went directly to corporate for the company and that's a pretty good sized company. And, um, you know, so his dive career, the only time he ever got wet was when he was in school. But, you know, he went from being a, a red hat tender to being the billing project manager guy in the office because <laughs> he had computer skills. Yeah. You know, it's really he was crazy. Smart. It, well, he is smart. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, he kind of felt disappointed that he never got to be the diver. Yeah. You know, so. But yeah, that's kind of what we're talking. What I was talking about just there. Does, does that ha- does that happen often, or what? Somebody makes that jump that fast? No, somebody that that's that says, "Hey, this diving thing is not for me. Let me jump into NDT." Uh, often. Just, I mean, yeah. it happens some every year. A few guys every year. We try to um, my admissions team, the recruiters. Mm-hmm. We try to be really candid um, so that people don't make a bad decision because bad decisions are expensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want someone to waste their time and their money trying to do something they're really not suited for. So you're not one of those schools that are like, yeah, make you an underwater welder. Come on in. Well, I made the mistake (laughs) of of testifying in Austin in front of an investigative committee. And there was a liberal... Uh, representative who will remain nameless, who hated all career schools. She was trying to run everybody out of business. So there's a whole panel of people investigating and they're asking questions. And like an idiot, I was in the school owner's trade organization. I'm there, kind of front and center. And she is caustic as an understatement. And all of a sudden, the guy running the committee said, Representative, you need to stop. I have the floor. And he goes, I don't know about the rest of these clowns, but the guy you're yelling at, he does things right. And he looked at me and he goes, do you remember me? Like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and, and, um, and I said, no, sir, honestly, I don't. And I said, he goes, my son is an alumni of your school. 
And then like a dumbass, the first thing that pops in my head is, is who's he work for? <laughs> and, and he goes, he's not working. Oh, shit. I said, we'll find him a job. And he goes, no, no, that's my point. It's not your fault. He said, do you, I brought my son to your school, and we sat in your office right off the lobby, and when you shook my son's hand, you didn't let it go right away. You rolled it over in your hand, and you looked at him, and you challenged whether or not he was really tough enough to be a diver. And he goes, you kind of judged him, but by the same token, you also said, you know, son, if you really want to do this, we're going to give you a chance to try if, if daddy wants to make the payments for you. And he, he said, you did everything you could to talk my son into the other career offer that you offer, which was the inspection. He wanted to be a diver. He went through your school and he gave it a shot. And within six months, he was back home on my couch. And he goes, but you never lied to that boy. And um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was sweating bullets. And, um, you know, I think, you know, this can go really south really fast. And, um, you know, so... Long story short, um, he was the head of the um, Texas Guaranteed Student Loan Corporation, which is in Austin, and, and they do all of the underwriting for student loans for all the students in Texas. And, um, and he goes, and what one of my point is to the rest of these people, you do that all the time, right? And I said, well, not all the time. He said, you do it often enough you don't remember doing it for me, which means it's kind of your default position. And I said, well, yeah. I mean, you know, we are a successful school when our alumni are successful, right? You know, so like Jeff's job with placement is relatively easy because a lot of people who are in management and diving companies are my alumni now. We've been doing this a very long time. So if my graduate is successful, then they want to hire people that are like them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's... It's not flash in the pan, how do we do next quarter, you know, we have stockholders to worry about, none of that shit. So, you know, you just, my father, to his credit, um, pretty much at the end of a stick or a belt, you know, raised me to try to do the right thing all the time. That makes sense? It does, and it's really refreshing to hear that, too, because, like I said, you know, you can't, you're, you're trying to sell the career and, you know, trying to, give them what they want, but at the same time, you can't lie to them, you know? Yeah. Because again, like you said, uh, if you have a bunch of washouts, you know, then it's like, well, it's it's part of your school success, you know? For, for us to stay at school. You kinda gotta weed them out a little bit. Well, they have to graduate, and they mm -hmm. have to go to work. And there's now a law called gainful employment. <clears throat> if they, there's a differential between what they made before they came to school, what they paid for school, and what they make after school. And if you don't make the Fed's ratio, they shut you down. So the schools that really struggle, one industry in particular, and I'm not picking on them, are the culinary arts schools. They're very expensive, you know, 60, 80, $100,000 oh, wow. to learn to be a chef. But when you come out, you're not a chef. You're a prep boy in the kitchen mm -hmm. making minimum wage. Like a tender. So, but it's worse than that. They make a lot less, oh. and um, and their school is a lot more expensive. And it's most of them are like a two year program, so they almost can't make the differential to make gainful employment ratios. So, I'm not a diving company. I'm not a diver. We're a school, so we operate in a different pond with different sharks. Our sharks are in Austin, Washington. And they're usually some, hi, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Please disregard the mass, the machine gun, right? Um, so one of the ways you survive in the school business is um, you don't draw your sword and run up San Juan Hill against the Department of Ed with a lawyer. That's a surefire way to get run out of business. Um, you have to fall on your own sword and apologize, pay the fine and fix it and promise to do wrong no more. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a very different cultural thing, you know. And But it's, I remember many, many years ago, getting sucker punched in a bar in New Orleans by someone who was in the Hall of Fame. Um, and he was cussing me a blue streak because I had let an African-American young man come to school. And I was personally responsible for ruining his industry, as he put it. And um, Les wouldn't let me fight back. Les picked me up with one hand. 
by the scruff of the neck, told me I had to just take it. He says, if he hits you again, game on. But take that one's punch. And he says, people will at least appreciate the fact that you didn't beat up the legend. And um, But the guy I led into school that I was being condemned for was a former Navy SEAL. This guy was great in the water, capable, squared away. I was like, whoa, dude, y'all are in for a rude awakening in about 20 years. Because I'm, I'm a business guy. I look at mm-hmm. demographics, right? <clears throat> you know, the dive industry is not going to get a steady supply of new people that are all going to look like they were Iowa farm boys. You know, they're going to be black, brown. They got long hair and piercings. And they are, I mean, you know, I've trained alternative lifestyle people over the years. Nobody gives a flip what you are. They care how you behave. Does that make sense? No, it does. It you does, know, yeah. I mean, when the, if I'm, and it's not the diving company's fault. 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I could bring an ex-offender in here who was clean on paper, get them an education and get them a job. But now the companies can't hire them because some of their customers won't let them work on mm-hmm. That's not the dive industry's fault. That's not the dive company's fault. That's the corporate customer's fault. You know, when Exxon and Shell won't let people on their jobs, then they're changing things. Mm-hmm. That was one of the big reasons why Les wanted us to do this ANSI standard. We've gone to this IDSA meeting for the international standards, but, you know, he saw the handwriting on the wall. Someday the Gulf is going to have Royal Dutch Shell and British Petroleum out there, and it's not just going to be Gulf and Texaco. And they're going to start trying to dictate things. And there's been several pushes over the years to where if you weren't an IMCA certified diver, you couldn't work in the Gulf of Mexico on their job. Mm-hmm. And the pushback has been, you know, Ross, we need to work on reciprocity of credentials. Um, do you remember Ross Saxon? Yeah. Used, used to be the executive director of the ADC um, before Phil Newsom. Before Phil, yeah. Before Phil. And um, Ross just didn't want anybody telling him what we could and couldn't do in the Gulf of Mexico. I said, you may feel that way, but that's not going to win because it's their stuff and it's their money and they get the lease from our government and they're going to control the job. So we saw what happened when BP ran Deepwater, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, so um, they have the money, they have the stroke, they can make the rule. So what we need to be is we need to be the smart little rodent that survived in the land of the dinosaurs by adapting, improvising, and overcome to steal the Marine Corps thing. So if we can get Americans an equivalent reciprocal credential, then they can't say we can't use them. For goodness sakes, I clean that up for you. Um, <laughs> hmm. Uh, there's a school that trains commercial divers in Egypt. And they train them according to the Egyptian government diver training standard. It is... Um, Don't tell me they're getting like IMCA cards too out of that. They have to. Yeah. You know why? Because they recognize one country's national standard as to another country's national standard. doesn't mean that anyone in the Europe will hire them, mm-hmm. but they can get the card. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of weird, but... Well, that's... You know, the Brits, I mean, they... they it started out as what? HSE, Health, Safety, and Education. Yeah. And... Um, Portsmouth? Is that where the school was? Uh, no, Fort Bovazon. Fort Bovazon in the UK. And, um, you know, they, they wrote the standard because the guy who had the lease for like a dollar a year for 99 years, because it's a government facility, it was an abandoned fort. Um, there was this rock jetty that goes out into the bay, kind of like they do off of Galveston down here, except the difference is when this goes out there, there's really deep water. Mm. So he was running a diver training school there and... Um, you know, there's like the gentlemen's clubs where you have to be a man to be in this London club and everybody sits around their leather chairs and drinks bourbon. Well, this guy was one of those. And so everybody else in there is like Lord so-and-so or whatever the hell. And um, so when he started having competitors 
who had like pickup trucks and a compressor and they were just diving off the beach. He says, wait a minute. These people are taking my market share. So he got the guys, and that's how they created the diving standards and HSE is what geographic advantage does he have at Fort Bovison that somebody else is going to have a difficult or costly time replicating? Well, you dove off the jetty, or you had a little like a John boat, and they go around on the protected side, jump off, and they're right in the water with tea bottles. And, and the, so what they did is they created the depth standard for the HSE thing to protect this one asshole <laughs> in his business, right? Because they were all buddies at the Gentleman's Club, which you have to be invited to join and pay and that, that thing. You don't even have strippers. I don't think they have strippers. I don't think they have any of that shit. You know? This is like, <laughs> no, this isn't like a men's club. This is like... I know. It was, it was a secret joke. I get it. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I, I'm not old enough to remember, but there are guys that are around still that are old enough to remember that the first divers that did all of that shit in the North Sea to build it were Americans. Yeah. You know, the Americans contractors and the American personnel went over there and drilled the first shit in the North Sea for the Norwegians and for the Brits. Mm -hmm. And then what did they do? They figured out a way to create this bureaucratic bullshit and throw us out. Okay? That's something, isn't it? So that... Terrible. Hearing that history is what motivated me to say, okay, let's, let's see what we can do. And I've spent... 30 years trying to convince people that what we need is we need a government agency to adopt a government standard and issue a stupid card with an eagle on the back. It could be the ANSI standard. It could be whatever the industry wants it to be. Mm -hmm. they, they don't want to create the standard. They want us to tell us what it is. Right. And all we need them to do is, is provide them a... Here's the reason why I think this would work. The agency that regulates for-profit trade schools in Texas is completely self-funded by fees generated by the schools it supervises. Let that sink in. I have to pay the state government enough money to run the agency to tell me what to do. Right? They, they actually collect more money from the schools than they allocate to the agency to supervise the schools. So the schools become a net profit generator for the state treasury of Texas. And it's, it's like twice to three times as much money. So they charge all these fees. Every time I do something, I get a new instructor application. I want to add a new program. I want to renew my credentials every year. I have to pay into a tuition protection fund. So if, a, if another school goes bankrupt and students get cheated out of some of their tuition money, then they tip into that fund, which I put money into to give the student his refund. Mm. So we're self-insuring as an industry. The federal government could do the same thing. They could have the diving association as part of the Department of Labor or Homeland yeah. Security or something. And it just makes sense. And then that agency gets five guys and a desk and in some computers, and all they do is they have a subcontract with a company that prints the cards, and we present to them, now electronically, all the file stuff they need to document this person's education, and then they could issue the card, and then there could be standardized testing, and if you want to be a supervisor mm -hmm. or whatever, and, and the whole thing wouldn't have to turn into a big bureaucracy. It could just be a self-funding little agency, much more like the pilot certification program. No, it makes it makes perfect sense. I'm glad you touched on that uh, while we were here. Um, is is there any other like pieces of advice you might want to give somebody that's thinking about dive school? And uh, just kind of give yourself a plug here before we wrap everything up. You know, I don't know if I'll give myself a plug, but if you commit give, to give the Ocean Corp plug, if you commit to something, finish it. Um, and if you commit to someone post-graduation to do something, do it. Well, awesome. Uh, Johnny, do you have anything else you want to touch no, on? No, thank you All very right. much for being on with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I mean, I know you're scraping the bottom of the barrel when you're starting to talk to me, so there are a bunch we, of... We've wanted to come out here for a while now, and thank you again for making it happen. But yes. No, it's just my pleasure. Um, I just kind of think through... I need to go back and look at all the people that have been your guests, and maybe come up with some people that you've missed, and maybe yeah. you hadn't been able to get them. Um, you know, they're busy guys and big mm -hmm. jobs, and um, I wish you the best of luck at expanding. Well, and, yeah. and and um, yeah, there's some there's some people you missed, unfortunately, that are that yeah. are no longer yeah. here. So, 
Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully this won't be the last time that we uh, kind of happen to be in here. So again, thank you for, for this time that we've been able to spend. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Make sure you like and follow on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook. Please share this podcast with your friends or anyone interested in commercial diving. The only way that uh, we can make this successful is if we do get a lot of people that are listening. We get more listeners, we get more sponsors, and that means more free stuff for you guys. That's right. We are hooking up all of our diver brothers and sisters in the trade. And uh, if you keep sharing and liking, we're able to do that a lot more. Our Instagram is at BottomDwellersDS. Our Facebook is Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. And you can always like and follow me at LB Diver on both. The Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack is available on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. We also have it streaming on our website at thebottomdwellers.com. So keep listening, keep it safe, keep it salty. This is LB Diver, out.